On this episode of the Concast, we discuss all things support systems and communication for those individuals that have suffered a traumatic brain injury. massage therapist and sports injury therapist and welcome to the concast a podcast where we discuss all things health wellness and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body this is episode 111 moving right along through season number three and thank you everybody that continues to support the podcast we've got Some upcoming interviews in Season 3 before we wrap up in the late fall, so stay tuned for those. For today's episode, I wanted to touch on... I've been doing a little bit more research as we prepare for our concussion course this fall, and one of the topics that I'm continually researching, and I think there's going to be great value for either people that have suffered a concussion or just clinicians... And a lot of these concepts and uh, principles can be applied to um, individuals that are in pain or have suffered an injury as well. But as I continue to try to refine how I communicate with patients that have suffered concussions, I continue to look at a variety of papers. And there are many really great papers and really great philosophical concepts about communication and body language and listening. And I came across this paper from 2012 by Toffer and just wrote a blog article on it at connorpcollins.com and thought that I would do a little bit more of a long form kind of explanation of that paper and what I learned from it. Because I thought, while it's 2012, we're looking at about 10 years old, people, sometimes papers, when they're 10 years old, they, they sort of say the research isn't relevant anymore. But I think there are a lot of decent little takeaways from this paper that I learned and I'd like to kind of pass that along to clinicians and individuals that are maybe suffering from a a mild traumatic brain injury. So I think first before we get into the topic, let's just clearly define what a concussion is. I've done this on other podcasts. If you're a regular listener, this won't be new for you, but if this is the first episode that you've listened to, A concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. And when we talk about brain injuries, there are three classes, mild, moderate, and severe. And obviously, the more moderate is more substantial than a concussion, and a severe is more substantial than a moderate. And the thing about mild traumatic brain injury, it's typically classed as a concussion, is there's not really any imaging findings. So it's not as though there's a bleed in the brain, there's no uh, disease process found, say, in a in the case of a progressive MS, there is no skull fracture or orbital fracture. These type of uh, injuries aren't found. So when you get an x-ray, a CT scan or an MRI or any variants of those images, those images are clean. And then the diagnosis of concussion comes through history, mechanism of injury, and the kaleidoscope or myriad of symptoms that you may be presenting with. The one thing that I should clarify is that A concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury, 
there is no such thing as a mild concussion. And so often um, people will say or people will come to me or I've heard elsewhere that they'll be diagnosed with a mild concussion. We have to remember that a concussion is a journey often of healing and we don't necessarily know or we can't necessarily say that one individual will recover in one week and the other individual will recover in a couple months. It doesn't appear like the mechanism of injury dictates the recovery period. So, for example, if I get hit lightly, whatever lightly means, let's say I take a, a knock in the head by an arm or something, but that's seemingly innocuous, it's not overly aggressive, it doesn't necessarily mean that my recovery time will be short. And so we can't say that someone has a mild, moderate, or severe concussion based on how they present at the time of the injury. We also know that loss of consciousness doesn't necessarily dictate recovery time. There are some thoughts about a variety of things that might help speed up recovery, but this is, again, something that we can't predict. So you either have a concussion, you don't have a concussion, or there are times where, plenty of times, where you're just not really sure However, the diagnosis of mild, moderate to severe concussion does not exist. It's a, a concussion is a class of injuries that are a part of this brain injury category called mild traumatic brain injury. Just a little bit of a backstory about how long I've been working in concussion, about eight or nine years. And when I first started my concussion education, a lot of it was designed around educating the patient specifically on what a concussion was. And we've seen this in other fields, particularly chronic pain, about educating patients and the importance of educating patients. Now, when I was first taking my education from a number of different individuals in the field at that time, now mind you, this was probably about nine or 10 years ago and concussion research has come so far in just that short period of time. The, the premise was that if a person had an understanding of what was going on, then they would be better served in their recovery process. And this was just how it was taught to me. And I was, you know, new to the field and therefore I was taking what I was being taught and trying to apply it to my practice. And so a lot of it was around educating the patient on what a concussion was and often allowing them to understand the physiological effects of what a concussion is doing in the brain. So saying that a concussion is in fact a brain injury, which it is, that is a true statement. And then talking about the cascade of physiological events that happen following a concussion based on the best available research that we have, which is animal-based studies. And so things like the brain goes into this energy crisis state, it then tries to rebalance itself, it needs energy to function, but it has a hard time getting it. And so that's why you're feeling the symptoms that you are. And you kind of get stuck often in this little bit of a roller coaster. And so for me, trying and wanting to be the best clinician that I can be, I really took this to heart and I developed sort of a two to three minute spiel based on looking through all the notes from the variety of courses from the different medical professionals that I'd taken courses from at the time and I really worked on my delivery of this if you want to call it a speech this two to three minute spiel on on what a concussion was and really hoping that I was delivering value 
and being really enthusiastic that I was going to, you know, really be able to help a lot of people by educating them. And to be honest, this just didn't work. It, it failed quite miserably in that I would tell individuals, you know, concussions, a brain injury, I'd go through all the physiological science of what the injury was. And I could just see people every time I recited it, get really anxious. It became very counterproductive to what I was trying to achieve, which was help the patient. It made them very nervous. It would increase drastically the number of questions they would ask, but also not in a, the questions weren't being sort of in a curious manner. They're almost being asked in an anxious manner. After probably a year to two years of refining the speech, taking things out, putting things in, still trying to keep it relatively short, I just abandoned I abandoned this method of, of I believe that everybody has to um, understand that a concussion is a brain injury and then understand the physiological process that goes on. The reason that I adopted this in the first place was Again, when I was being taught, the importance of this was emphasized. I just got rid of it. It wasn't serving me well. I understood that in my, my clinical practice, I don't know if it was necessarily making people worse or more fearful, but we were aware of when we scare patients, often inadvertently by the things that we say to them, can have damaging, if you want to use that word, or counterproductive effects in how they may be able to recover. Well, the intent of everyone that taught me was positive, and while my intent was positive, I wasn't getting the sense that this was becoming helpful for people. Like I said, I abandoned that. Now, that doesn't mean that today, t- close to 10 years later, that I won't provide people with context and physiological information. But one thing, I certainly don't openly give that speech on my own, I take a much more guidance from the patient. And if they seem to be more inquisitive about what a concussion is, I offer it to them. I can explain to you the sort of ins and outs of concussion if, if you're comfortable f- with that and allow them to kind of guide the process a little bit more. I think that's pretty consistent with shared decision-making models of treatment planning that become more and more prominent in the research in in fields of pain and musculoskeletal medicine and and that type of thing. I share this story because I was taking it because the individuals that were teaching me were teaching me how to do this and I don't think that they were necessarily teaching me with ill intent. It's just one of those things that sometimes again when we're looking at evidence-based practice and all of the elements of it While evidence may suggest one thing or certain teachings at a particular point in time, time being 10 years ago, would suggest one thing, as you evolve with the research and you look at components of patient values and clinical practice and how those individuals are responding to what you're delivering, if it doesn't really seem to be serving the the shared decision-making process, then it would be okay to abandon it. It doesn't mean that you have to abandon it completely. You can return to it. You can modify it like I did and, and come back to it. The idea that this can't be done sometimes is a little bit puzzling to me because that's what we're in. We're in practice. That's kind of a long-winded explanation of where I'm coming from, but I recently came across this paper, like I said, by Toffer. It's a 2012 paper 
It's entitled Improving Communication for People with Brain Injury in the 21st Century, The Value of Collaboration. Again, made me reflect once again on communication as therapists and that often while we focus, or I'll speak for myself, while I focus on how I communicate, whether that's through active listening, body language, the delivery of what I say, um, there's a couple of things that this paper brought light to that made me really reflect in a different manner. The first is the complex and specific challenges of individuals that have suffered from brain injury, mild, moderate to severe. Now, the first thing that I should say about this paper is it discusses moderate to severe brain injury. It does not discuss mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. However, I think there are a lot of takeaways that can be applied to that population. One of the things that's particularly frustrating in moderate to severe brain injury is aphasia or the inability to find descriptive words for what an individual is trying to say or the inability to produce language at all. A lot of what individuals would regularly use to communicate with their peers, their partners, their healthcare providers can be blunted or completely absent. And so there is already this layer of frustration that is present. Now, while aphasia can be present in mild traumatic brain injury, it is less, but people still can experience the inability to kind of find a word. If they're in very, very busy environments, they can be overwhelmed and that can affect both language as well as body language and the inability to just even be in an environment that's really, really busy. There's two elements that this research paper discussed. I'm talking about improving communication through social skills. And then the second one was the one that really stuck with me, and that was training of partners and caregivers on how to cope with the difficult behaviors related to brain injury. So this study was a three-arm study, and it looked at communication on and managing symptoms related to against severe traumatic brain injury. So the first group was put into a group with healthcare providers. Now, the thing about this study is it was a non-randomized study, so there could be some bias there. The other thing is the study wasn't blinded, and um, blinded means sort of the participants and the examiners within the study don't know who is getting what intervention, and I think this is because it's based on counseling, so it's really hard to fake, quote-unquote, counsel someone. So group number one was individuals that received communication and training on their own. So they received the same training as group number two. However, group number two had a partner and caregiver present in the training. And then group number three was a delayed treatment control group. And the primary question that was trying to be answered in the study was, does including a partner in strategies for everyday living provide additional benefit rather than training communication strategies to person individually who has suffered the injury. The way that this was organized was in kind of group therapy sessions were delivered to in groups of four to five participants for two to two and a half hours in length. And then in addition, each participant received a one hour therapy session per week, which focused on their individual struggles and hurdles around their injury. So group two received the exact same intervention the difference being that their supportive partner or caregiver was present. When we look at how this session was laid out, this training session, there was usually an introduction. And the introduction 
talked about the expectations for each member and introduced the other clinicians and introduced the particular session involved. And then it talked about the educational component of traumatic brain injury and how the cognitive, physical, and behavioral systems interact to provide and support and produce communication. The groups then broke off into two sections called Effective Communication 1, and this explored the forms and purposes of communication, different contextual factors, structure, the different roles of communication, how communication roles affect outcomes and interactions. And then an extension of communication one was communication two, where they examined general communication strategies and explore barriers to communication in everyday life. Section five was called collaboration, and it focused on techniques to help conversations to be collaborative. The word that they were using was more equal and organized. This for the joint group was really, really important, and then it helped communicative partners provide structure and support to the person that had suffered the TBI in their conversations. After that, the session broke off into elaboration, which focused on the concept of keeping conversations going by exploring techniques that help to organize and link topics. This, again, was done from just everyday living perspective, as well as whether individuals had specific needs in in everyday life. The session then closed off with asking questions, exploring appropriate and helpful questions to start and keep conversations going, particularly if they had difficulties with that, and then improving skill and confidence and just revising information, continuing to practice each technique learned in previous sessions, go through conversations again. So this is kind of the organization roughly of what these sort of two to two and a half hour sessions had in in context. When we look at overarching themes of collaboration within each session, the researchers broke down positive collaboration versus non-collaborative communication. They discussed really five elements of positive collaboration. And collaboration was how the supportive partner can collaborate with the individual that suffered from the injury to produce a more positive outcome. So for example, positive collaboration, the five elements of positive collaboration are collaborative intent, cognitive support, emotional support, asking positive questions, and collaborative turn-taking. So if we look at collaborative intent, for example, they use the word or the, the sentence, let's think about it. So let's together think about it. Cognitive support, One example of that might be the use of organizational supports by the caregiver, managing their calendar, managing their daily tasks, organizing it for them to take the burden off of the individual that has suffered from the injury. Emotional support, an example of that might be acknowledgement of the difficulties of the injury. Positive questions, an example of a positive question, what do you need to accomplish that? How can I help you? And then collaborative turn-taking is when the caregiver assists in expressing the thoughts when the injured person is struggling to find words. And I think collaborative turn-taking might be one of the most nuanced things of communication when you're a partner supporting an individual with an injury because one of the things that you don't want to do in collaborative turn-taking is put words in somebody's mouth that they don't feel. And so I think this is a really, really nuanced but important part of positive collaboration and communication. 
So if we then look at the flip side of that, what are some non-collaborative examples of communication? If we take five elements again, being non-collaborative, lacking cognitive and emotional support, negative questioning, and non-collaborative turn-taking. So an example of being non-collaborative would be if I am the supportive partner or caregiver, I'm demanding, I lack understanding, I lack enthusiasm. Lack of cognitive support corrects in a punishing manner. You should have done that or why didn't you put that in your calendar? Not being supportive and providing individuals with organization throughout the day. A lack of emotional support, same thing, fails to acknowledge the difficulty of their daily tasks. Um, is dismissive of the difficulties that that individual is suffering um, in a brain injury or any other injury for that matter. Asking negative style questions. How are you going to do that? Putting somebody in an uphill battle um, before they've even begun rather than the flip side of that is what do we need to accomplish that? So yes, we are going to accomplish it and what is it that we need to do as a team to get there rather than how can you do that? It's almost this gray cloud of impossibility before the individual's even taken any steps to achieve the goal. I would take it one step further that if these are seemingly easy, quote unquote, tasks to the individual pre-injury and now the, the supportive or the individual that's supposed to be in that supportive role is saying, well, how are you going to do that now? That can lead to a whole host of other um, psychological factors that can negatively affect the, the process of recovery. And then lastly, non-collaborative turn-taking. An example of this might be just just interrupting the injured person as they um, talk, putting words in their mouth without maybe um, having spoken to the person prior to the appointment or during the appointment. Or once those words are said, going back to the individual that's injured and saying, is that okay? Does that make sense? Am I relaying that message in a correct manner for you? The paper provides even more examples of those Um, five elements of um, collaborative or non-collaborative communication. And I'll link the paper in the show notes. So for those individuals that are interested in in reading the paper into a little bit more depth, then you have the ability to do that. But all in all, the research study indicated that there were positive, more positive outcomes for those individuals that attended the communication session with the caregiver rather than being alone. One of the things, and I said this in the blog, that I've really made a conscious effort to do as I have evolved in a clinician that manages mild traumatic brain injury on a, on a regular basis is asking individuals, and I've always done this, but asking individuals about support systems. So what do they have in place? Are they currently struggling with mental health and do they have a counselor within the community? Do they have an occupational therapist? Are they in school and they haven't been to school and do they have uh, an advocate or somebody a support system that can advocate for alternative learning in the meantime while they're recovering. And so I've been very good at asking about support systems. The one thing that I have failed to understand well or failed to before this paper be good at is understanding the nuanced or the nuances rather of that question and what it means. So what I said in the blog was many people that come to see me are alone. So they come to the appointment and they're alone. Um, They've driven themselves. If somebody's coming in with them, they typically will drop them off. The uh, exception to this rule would be children. Most children come with a parent or often two parents. I think based on this study, it would be better 
if the supportive partner or caretaker, particularly if that individual is really struggling, be present in the appointment. I'm going to try and and figure out how to better set that up, whether that is um, having my front office staff uh, indicate that in the appointment. If you have a a partner or a friend or somebody that's taking care of you, particularly if the person's really struggling and is symptomatic, we would like them to be in the appointment. And this will do a few things. It will offer them support. It will allow them to another person to absorb information in the context of the appointment because often in the appointments, even if you're going through education and planning and management and treatment and exercise and the person's already in an overwhelmed state, it's very hard for them to digest the information. I always follow up my appointments with a really thorough email, but again, email isn't really the same as being there. So it's multifactorial. It it allows the person to feel comfortable in, in having support, but it also serves as, from an organizational perspective, allows them to better absorb the information that was in the appointment and then put that into action um, and be compliant in their everyday lives and hopefully be able to manage symptoms in that sort of sub-symptom threshold manner or just maybe pushing to the edge of their discomfort and then being able to pull back. I think for me, the understanding of what does support system mean Often when I would say it previously, it was what additional medical supports do we need? And then do you have support at home, which I think is still an important question. However, based on this study, can that person be present with us? And is that helpful for you? And then how can that person be helpful moving forward? Jumping off from that point... I've observed over the years some really interesting dynamics of communication between loved ones and injured individuals in the context of an appointment. And I say this in the blog as well, that it's hard when, for me personally, when I see someone that's struggling, either post-concussion or chronic pain or what have you, looking for support from their partner in an appointment and not receiving it in the forms of these aspects of communication that I've just outlined. I often wonder whether, you know, forming a support group within my clinic of individuals that are going through similar things would be would be valuable in trying to navigate this often muddy process of, of the dynamics between a supportive or non-supportive partner and somebody that's injured. There have also been times where, and I don't believe, generally speaking, that individuals are doing this on purpose, at least in my mind, I would hope that they weren't, where appointments become really stressful and, and tense between both parties that are present. The individual is not getting support and they're getting blamed or the supposed supportive partner is putting all of the attention on themselves and then expressing their frustration of the other person's injury to me. That is a really difficult, and I'm sure there are other clinicians that are listening, it's a very difficult place to be um, and a very difficult place to navigate. I know for me, I try to reframe it and focus on positive elements and um, whether that person's been making improvements or um, can we bring in support for both parties? Is is there a way that we can, if the, if the supportive partner is really struggling, can we get support for them through some of our networks within the clinic? But it is... Uh, admittedly for me, quite a difficult thing to navigate and quite a stressful thing to navigate. And uh, no matter how many times I'm in that situation, I don't really think I get any better at doing it because there is 
those situations are often very, very specific. Moving forward, how I'm going to reframe supportive networks is obviously outlining medical supports, looking at some of the big elements of concussion, making sure those individuals that have had the injury are supported medically through either our networks or internal network of practitioners. That might include something, someone like a cognitive behavioral therapist, a psychiatrist in certain situations, along with a family doctor, occupational therapist and that type of thing, physical therapist myself, making sure that in those circumstances where a robust medical team is required that they have access to those supports. But then going a little bit further on that question of what type of support do you have at home? Would you mind if that partner was present in our appointment? Is there a way that they can help you? Maybe you need to be able to ask them more. And certainly if things seem to be a little bit more complicated than just a couple of questions, then providing an outlet for cognitive behavioral therapy where maybe both parties can go or a number of parties can go in circumstances where all parties are really, really struggling to navigate this injury. In hopes that I could just continue to be a little bit better at this skill because I think it is one of the most nuanced things to what we do in recognizing communication and then providing support for individuals. I really enjoyed this paper. It's not an overly lengthy paper. It's uh, maybe 10, 10 pages long. It's a very easy read. Um, I'll link it in the in the show notes. And I hope that this episode was was valuable for you, either if you're a clinician, understanding the importance of maybe having a supportive partner or a caregiver in the appointment and what that might do versus not, as well as if you're somebody that's struggling with an injury, having the supportive partner present with you so you can express your needs and then relay that to the healthcare practitioner might also offer value as the person that's going through something that's causing a lot of stress in potentially a lot of different environments. So my question for you this week is if you are a clinician, how do you navigate these often nuanced environments where there are so many layers to communication, a lot of different things and moving parts that are involved? I'd love to know in the comments below. And if you are somebody that's either gone through a really substantial injury or a concussion, how has having the support of a partner or a caregiver been of benefit to you? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you.